Bibles and find your way to 1 John chapter 4, to the passage that was just read for us this morning. If you do not have a copy of the Scriptures uh, with you or on a mobile device, uh, you should be able to find a copy of the Scriptures there in the uh, seat back in front of you. We'd encourage you um, to go ahead and uh, open up the Scriptures to 1 John chapter 4, even if the Scriptures are uh, kind of unfamiliar to you. Uh, you can find it there in one of the Bibles provided on page 1023. So we can usually find page numbers, and there you'll find our text this morning. Uh, we encourage that because at Highlands Baptist Church, we believe that God's Word brings life to His people. Uh, God, by His Spirit, with His Word, is what breathes life into His people. And so we want, uh, as elders, not for you just to take our word for it as we, as we preach. We want for you to look at God's Word with your own eyes and see his word for yourself as we grow together uh, in the scriptures. This morning we're going to be resuming our uh, sermon series through the Apostle John's first letter. Uh, so uh, we find ourselves here in 1 John chapter 4. If you're wondering why we've skipped the first part of 1 John 4, um, we're coming back to it. Uh, we've had a, a bit of a change in the schedule and uh, Pastor Steve is fine. Uh, if you're wondering uh, where he is, he's uh, doing um, uh, helping one of his uh, children get some things uh, from from college. And uh, so uh, I am scheduled for this Sunday. I know last Sunday was kind of a last-minute thing. That's not the case this Sunday. Uh, but this Sunday we have a lot of work to do because we're going to look at uh, a longer section to get us back on track. And next week, if you're wondering what verses 1 through 6 mean, come back because Pastor Steve plans to preach verses 1 through 6. As you look at chapter 4 and verse 7, what was just read to us all the way down to verse 21 you should take notice of how often the word love appears. In fact, just kind of scan through that and you'll see it appear over and over and over again. By my count, I found it repeated 27 times, either the word love or loved. And if you add to that John's terms of endearment for his readers, beloved, that count even goes up higher. So whatever we might say about this passage, we need to understand that the main theme that... Uh, John has in mind, has something to do with the idea of love. Uh, there's a lot in this section, of course, but we can boil it down to a exhortation that John repeats twice in this section. You can find it in verse 7 when he says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then you can find it down in verse 11 where he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, here it is again, here's the repetition, we also ought to love one another. It's not the first time he's given a command to love back in chapter 3 and verse 23, maybe a page over uh, on your Bible, he says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So let's remember why John is writing this letter. He's writing this letter so that Christians would have confidence, would have assurance that they have eternal life. You can find that purpose statement in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. So however we then understand what he's writing here about love, we need to make sure that we understand um, what he's saying about love in connection to his stated purpose for the letter. I'm just saying that so we don't um, kind of cannonball into a section that talks about love and we start to make it what we want it to say. We need to make sure that we let uh, John's intent for writing about love serve the purpose of his original intent for the, for the letter, which is to give Christians assurance and confidence that they have eternal life. Uh, in the book of 1 John, he's been giving us various tests that can be used to help the Christian community discern, are they truly a child of God? 
Uh, some of those tests that we've looked at already, in this section, he's elaborating and giving further discussion on what we could call the love test. And that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Really, the main idea of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 could be put as simply as this. Christian assurance comes through love. Or Christian assurance through love. And the reason that John exhorts his readers to love one another is because it's through love that the Christian can be assured that they are truly a child of God, that they, are, that they have eternal life. Of course, there's more going on in this passage. And uh, what we're going to be looking at, though, is the truths that are orbiting around John's command for us to love one another. What goes through your mind when you hear a command to love? What goes through your mind? What, what do you feel in your heart when you hear someone command love? Maybe you're troubled at it, right? Does it seem very unromantic? Does that idea maybe seem to leave you with hopelessness or hopefulness? Or maybe you think that, hey, if you've got to command love, you've just rendered the whole idea of love null and void. These questions cause us to consider the nature of love. What is it? Is love primarily a feeling or is it primarily an action? Is love spontaneous or is love deliberate? I think this passage of Scripture is going to be helpful for us to discover some wrong ideas that we have in our modern Western society about love, even as a Christian community. And I think it's going to be helpful because it's going to show us how much better love is than we could ever imagine. So I've chosen to organize this sermon around John's exhortations to love one another. Now, he repeats himself there in verse 7 and then in verse 11. And he repeats himself because I think what he's doing is he's giving us some different angles of understanding a love and how it functions in the Christian community as a vehicle for assurance. And as we look at that command, as we look at those different angles that he comes at it, of course, we're going to along the way unpack some rich treasures about God, about his love, and about how all of this is relevant for us today. So you ready? Let's start. Number one, Christians love one another because love is from God. Love is from God. Uh, it's wonderful as a pastor when you don't have to figure out how to word main points. When the scriptures just give it to you right there. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why, you ask? For love is from God. Christian love, Christians love one another because love is from God. John is arguing that God's people must love one another because love is from God. If you love others, then that will be an evidence, John is saying, that you know God because God is the source of love. Okay? Like you might look at a bottle of water. You ever done that? And look around and it says, you know, bottle at the source or something like that. And it tells you where the source is. The water didn't come from the bottle. The water came from the spring, from some other source. And that's John's point here, is that if you see love in you, okay, you must love others. Why? Because love is from God. If you are a child of God, if you have been born of God, you will be marked by love from your heavenly Father. In verse 8, he further defines what he means when he says love is from God. If you see in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why, you ask? Because God is love. Love is from God and God is love. These are two phrases that have different emphases, but they mean similar things. John is pointing out that God is the source of Christian love. And if Christian love is evidenced in your life, then that is a, uh, a method of finding reassurance that you have eternal life. As children of God, Christians have God's nature. What is God's nature? God is love. 
And that nature of God is at work in his people, and what it does is it produces love for others. Now, the words, God is love, are some of the most commonly known words in the Bible. And they're used and twisted to mean all sorts of different things. I think probably the most common distortion of the words, God is love, makes it sound like something else to something like this. It basically means then, and often it means this. Okay, this is not what John meant, okay? I'm not talking about something that's not true. Our world often thinks that the term God is love means this. Love is God. They say, oh, God is love. And what happens is they elevate love to basically become kind of like God-like. But that is not what the phrase is saying. God is love does not mean that love is God. Nor is John's emphasis that God is loving or lovely. God doesn't simply just do loving things. God is love. Now, certainly that means that he does loving actions, yes. But why does he do loving actions? It's because he is, by nature, love. Since God is love, that means then that he is the authority about what love is. Now, that statement that I just said, that God is the authority for what love is, we might just accept, you know, casually, but we need to let that sink in. Because our world wants us to think all sorts of different things about love. In fact, our world is promoting the idea that you are the definer of love. You, as an individual. And your individual definition of love might differ from someone else's definition of love, but that's okay because love. It's all up to you. The scriptures flatly denounce that idea. God is the authoritative definer of love. Why, you ask? Because he is love. Love is from God. And I believe this is, by the way, just kind of on a side, this phrase, the idea of that love is from God or God is love, it's a strong apologetic for the existence of God. Now, we could spend a whole sermon on this. We won't. But I just want to point out, um, even I, I think, now I can't say this conclusively, but I'm imagining that even the most strong agnostic or atheist is going to still have trouble admitting that love is just simply a scientific biological phenomenon of chemicals firing off in your brain matter. I think. Love is not just simply a chemical reaction because, really, try it out for yourself. Think about somebody you love, a child, a spouse, a, a, a loved one in your family, um, a dear kindred spirit through the age, through the years, and just think. If love is not from God, then what you experience for that person, love for them, is purely just a biological firing of chemicals in your brain matter that will cease to exist when you cease to exist. I don't think any of us are satisfied with that notion about love. We know innately that love reaches beyond dimensions. It, it, it carries past that. There's, there's some sort of eternal quality about love that we all know is there. We may not be able to define it, but we understand there's something more powerful going on than just some biological process in brain matter. What is love then? The word love is used to mean all sorts of things, right? I mean, just imagine, uh, or just think back about all the various ways you used the word love this past week. You love it when you get all green lights. Okay, you know, on the road, okay? Um, think about this. Here's a silly illustration that has stuck with me through the years about how various ways we use the word love. Someone might say they love fish. You know where this is going, right? What does that mean? Well, to begin with, they purposefully trick and deceive a fish by villainously enticing it to eat some bait. But it's worse. 
A dreadfully sharp hook is cleverly concealed in the bait by the one who loves fish. Once the fish takes the bait and the hook is then set firmly in the jaw of the fish, then a game of tug-of-war ensues, right? The person who loves fish pulls and yanks on the hook embedded in the fish's jaw. Eventually, if all goes well for the one who loves fish, the fish is pulled up out of the water which it needs to live. Then later the fish is filleted, its meat is seasoned, then fried in a pan to be eaten, all by the person who loves fish. So, of course, we chuckle at that silly I know, idea about love. But love can mean all sorts of different things in our current day society, right? What is John meaning here when he's talking about love, when he's talking about love is from God or God is love? Well, the answer to that question is found in verses 9 and 10. Look at that. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed. It was displayed. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John defines love as the sacrificial atoning gift of Jesus who satisfied God's wrath for our sins. John defines love as the gospel, the central message of Christianity. Christianity is not just a code of ethics that you have to live by, some list of rules you have to abide by to make yourself some sort of religious you know, person, to then you know, feel good about your life in the world and, and get on and somehow God will be pleased with your righteous actions. No, the central message of Christianity is God giving himself to redeem sinners. Love is God giving Jesus to die for our sins so that we might live through him. That's what verse 10 says. Love is not defined by our actions. You see, that's why he says there in verse 10, it's not that we have loved God. We are not the definers of love. God is. Which is, by the way, a great thing because if we're defining love, it would be distorted and short-sighted and small and insignificant and self-serving. But God's love is life-giving through his sacrificial gift of Christ. So the love that John writes about is the love of God for sinners that caused him to send Jesus to be, there's that fancy word, right, in verse 10, the propitiation for our sins. I know that's a very Christianese kind of word, but it's a good word. It's a word that really means how God, the saving acts that God accomplished through Jesus Christ, whereby God's wrath for sin was satisfied through the gift of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. God is rightfully wrathful against sin. What is he going to do to satisfy that wrath? Well, he will condemn and judge all sinners, or what he will do is he will condemn and judge a sacrifice for sinners, and his name was Jesus. So in other words, when John writes about love, he's writing about the gospel. That's what love is. John's use of the term then is not a squishy sentimentalism. Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross for that. Love is not just how someone makes you feel. Love is not really a satisfaction of your desires with pleasurable experience. It's not primarily an emotion or an emotional experience. Love is decisive. It's even heroic actions of sacrifice and service and self-denial, all for the good of the other. So then, the biblical definition of love is quite different from our popular notion of love. Often when the word love is used, it is primarily describing how someone makes you feel and it's absent of the idea of you in committed, sacrificial, self-denial service for the other. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote about it this way in Romans chapter 5. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It says, For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But here's God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we could spend more time meditating upon God's love. We'll come back to that later. But let's, so far we've learned that Christian love, Christians love one another because love is from God and we are born of God. Therefore, God's nature is in us, loving others. As we continue down through this, though, as he talks about the gospel, then in verse 11, he repeats his command. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Number two, Christians love one another because God loved us. Not only is love from God, is it his nature, but God loved us. It's not just that God is a, is a person who is love, but he has put that love into action towards us. And I know I've kind of basically um, preached that point already by looking at how, how John describes the gospel here in verses 9 and 10. But I want to clarify John's argument in verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Often when we hear words like that, we can switch into a sort of debtor's ethic. The idea of feeling a debt, feeling kind of this burden, this, this debt we must repay. Listen, you've received God's love, well now you can kind of pay back some of the debt you owe him through your actions of love towards others. I do not believe that is what John is saying here. I don't think that's the motive that John is harnessing, kind of making his readers feel guilty for being so loved by God that I guess I've got to go out and love other people now. I believe the aim here is more along the lines of this. Because we've been loved by God, we therefore have plenty of love to share with others. That's what's happening here. Listen, God has lavishly poured out his love on you. So what's the result? You can't help but love others then. There's such an excess of love springing out of you, this fountainhead of love from God that what is going to happen in his people is that they are going to love others. In verse 12, we learn that love is a sort of visible expression of God. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You ever wonder what's going on there? Is John just kind of just firing off these theological phrases in some random order? No, I believe they're connected. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. I think what John is saying here is that, yes, God has not been seen physically himself as God the Father, but we do see something above God when we see his love. When God's people are engaged in actions of love to one another, what we start to see is shadows, as glimpses of who God is. Why? Because God is love. That's why. In verses 12 and 16, by the way, there's that word perfected there. Um, in verse 12, that's an important word. We're going to come back to that because he's going to pick up that idea uh, later on. So we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But in verses 12 to 16, John is picking up this theme of God abiding in us. Again, as you read through this, you might be thinking, is John just kind of shift, randomly shifting gears, talking about love, and now he's talking about abiding. What's going on? How do we keep this straight? I believe that these themes are related. And by the way, you can read more about what John uh, heard from Jesus about abiding in John chapter 15, not, not, his, not his letter, 1 John, but in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 15. There's much that could be said about this idea of abiding, but I think what his main me, uh, uh, aim is, is that the abiding presence of God in his people is the source, it's the wellspring of love for others, and that should give all Christians hope. 
Are you concerned or feeling overwhelmed with John's exhortation, love others? Maybe you're just kind of an ordinary person and love is tough. Love is difficult. Love is, love is a challenge, right? I mean, look around at this room and just imagine you have an obligation from the Scriptures to love these people. Worry, I mean, sometimes that means you feel hopeless about it, right? How am I going to find that emotion? It's elusive. Well, friends, we don't have to find an emotion. God abides in his people. And what is God? He's love. So take heart. You don't have to drum up love on your own. You don't have to find some hidden resources of, you know, meditate on kind of, you know, happy feelings towards that person to drum up this emotion for them so you can have actions of love towards them. No. Take heart. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 12. He is the source. Love is from God. So Christians love others because they've been born of God. That's verse 7. It's not the other way around. I want to make sure this is very clear. If you're not a Christian, you hear this emphasis in the scriptures about love. I don't want you to to think that you can make yourself a Christian by doing actions of love. If you just become a person, you know, devoted towards, towards loving actions of others, that that's going to make you a Christian. That's not how it works. John's point is very clear. Love is from God. You must be born of God. When you're born of God, the one you're born of, God of love, he's going to produce in you actions of love. The new birth precedes the actions of love for the Christian. Does that make sense? You can't reverse engineer yourself into being a Christian by doing actions. Now, you become a Christian through faith in Jesus. When you're born by, by grace through faith in Jesus, then God is abiding in you and he will produce in you love. So then in verses 13 and 15, as he's talking about God's spirit abiding in all of his children, how do we know that we have God's abiding spirit? Uh, More can be said about this. He says some about that in verses 1 through 6. I hope you're interested to learn more. Come back next week. But what he's talking about here in verses 13 through 15 is he's connecting a person's confession of Jesus as God's son as the same thing as a confession of knowing God's love. Which means you cannot say you know God's love if you refuse to confess Jesus as God's son. If you refuse to confess that Jesus is God, of who he is as Messiah, God sent one, then you cannot say you know God's love because God has given love to this world in Jesus. That's how he's done it. So those two ideas are connected. We have come to know, verse 16, we have come to know and believe, what? The love that God has for us. What do we believe? What do we know? That Jesus is God. He's the Messiah, God sent one. What does abiding in God mean then, right? If I were to tell us all, go abide in God. What is that going to look like? What are you supposed to do? Abiding in God means that you embrace Jesus as God sent one to be the Savior of the world. You embrace Jesus as God's gift of love. The one that brings you back into right relationship. The one who is the satisfaction of God's wrath for your sin. The one who is the Savior of the world so that you can live. That's what John is saying. So here as we look in this text, John is requiring Christians to be people of love. But he keeps pointing his readers back to the source of love, which is God. Keeps pointing it back there. Love is from God. God is love. Here he's talking about this. Take heart because God's spirit abides. God abides in you and he's the fountainhead of love that's going to be in action in all of his people. But it gets even better. Number three, God's love gives Christians confidence for the day of judgment. God's love gives Christians confidence for the day of judgment. This is verses 17 through 19. 
And here John picks up the theme of love being perfected. Remember back in verse 12 when he talks about no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there's something, some connection between God being seen in some manner with love being perfected in his people. Well, what does it mean then for love to be perfected? The word perfected doesn't mean what you probably think it means in the idea of making something without fault or blemish. That's often what we think of perfection, you know, being perfected. Uh, you might ask somebody, are you a perfectionist? And what you mean by that is, do they want to have everything that, that isn't right then becomes right, right? Uh, making something that is flawed and blemished and removing all the flaws and blemishes from that. That's not what this word means in the New Testament use of it. And we could do a study on um, all the different uses through the New Testament and I could prove this to you. But the New Testament uses the word perfected to describe something that becomes completed or finished or accomplished. So think of it this way. You can complete a marathon. You can complete a road trip. So you could use the other word. You can, you can have a marathon that is perfected. You can have a road trip that has been perfected because come to completion. And God's love is completed, it is accomplished, it is perfected in his people. How does that happen? I believe God's love is completed or is perfected in his people when we are active in love towards others. So this is, I hope we can understand John's reasoning, right? Sometimes because it goes in circles, we can get kind of confused. What John is saying is you can have assurance that you're a child of God if you love others. Love is from God. God is love. He's the source. That's where it's being originated from in his people. That's why it's a confidence and it's an assurance that you truly know God. And he talks about love being perfected. What is love being perfected? It's you putting love into action. What does that mean? You're loving others. When God's love is put into action through us loving others, God's love is perfected. That's the aim of God's love. That's what it's driving, driving forward to. That is, that is its end conclusion. God's love is not meant to stop with us once it's received. It's not just a commodity that we kind of hoard and store up into kind of our own little account and we kind of capture it and keep it safe for ourselves. God's love is meant to be received and what it does is it transforms the one that, is, that it received and so it, it's put into action to be loving others. Those who receive God's love will love others. It's an unavoidable result. That's what God's love is meant to do. That's why John is giving us the love test. If you love others, it's an evidence that you've been born of God. It's an evidence that God's love, which you have because you're born of him, is being perfected. It's coming to its completion. Loving one another is not an obligation we must fulfill. I want to be clear on this, okay? If you're, if you're hearing things like a, kind of a, a, a list of what I must do as a Christian, please don't think that loving others is an obligation you must fulfill. Love is an unavoidable result that will be produced in everyone who knows God. That's John's point. That's why he's using it as a test for assurance. Think of it like a flower, okay? You can have a flower bud. That is God's love. But the flower bud blooms. The flower's blooming. It's God's love being perfected in us by us putting love into action towards others. I hope this is making some sense. How does love then give Christians assurance? Look at verse 17. The result of love being perfected in us 
You have confidence in the day of judgment. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What is John talking about with this day of judgment? Well, he's referring to what Jesus spoke about often. As you read through the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus regularly returned to this theme, this this warning of coming judgment. And this is why he was calling sinners to repent and embrace him as God sent one who would bring them back into right relationship with God. That coming judgment is described in Hebrews chapter 9 when it says it's appointed for a person to die once and after that comes judgment. We're told that those who are condemned in this day of judgment will be separated from God forever and sentenced to an eternal hell. As disturbing and dreadful as that is, it is a terrifying biblical reality. And we don't hear much about that today, right? In our day and age. We like to hear about God's love, but we usually don't like to hear anything about God's judgment. But friends, John is putting both in this passage. God's love matters because it's God's love that rescues you from what? From eternal judgment. And so this dreadful reality, this terrifying reality of being condemned from God and separated in an eternal hell, here's what happens though. God's love does a work inside of his people so that it overcomes and destroys any fear of condemnation by replacing fear with confidence. And this is absolutely amazing. When God's love is active in his people towards others, fear of God's judgment is removed because loving others reassures us that we are truly born of God and have eternal life. It does not mean that you work yourself into assurance. Like, I've got to do a lot of loving things now to be really assured. <laughs> that's, okay, that's you then trying to be the fountainhead of love. No, remember verse 7, love is from God. Verse 8, God is love. As in the beginning and through the middle of that section, God's abiding in you. His spirit is in you. That's what produces love. But here's the result then. As we, as his people, are, are letting God's love be perfected in us, in action, putting towards action towards others, is that if we're born of God, then we're delivered from any fear of condemnation from God. That's how comprehensive God's love is. All condemnation for your sin is then removed in Jesus Christ. That's what the word propitiation means. All of God's wrath has been satisfied in Him, in Jesus, not in you, so you can stand with confidence before God with no fear of condemnation in that final day of judgment. That is astonishing. Everybody is looking for that. That's why the whole kind of cliche, like Halloween decoration of a, of a gravestone with R.I.P. rest in what? Rest in peace. Our whole, the whole world wants that notion of what? Coming to rest. What kind of rest? A peaceful rest. Where do you find this peace? When you stand condemned for your sin before your eternal God. The Apostle John is pointing to it in Jesus Christ. The gift of God to us. His love. And so, at the end of verse 17, John is connecting loving others as one way that we show we are like Jesus. That's what he's saying there with that phrase in verse 17. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And they go, I'll scratch your head. How are we like Jesus then? We are like Jesus in the, in, the, in the sense of us as Christians letting God's love be perfected in us so that we are engaged in actions of love towards others because that's what Jesus did. And so John's point is that when we put love into action towards others, we are in a way like Jesus and God won't condemn people who are like his son. 
So the result is then you can stand with confidence in that day of judgment, not in a self-made confidence of your works, but in the works that God has produced through you because you're born of him and love is from God. God is love and he abides in you. I hope this is making sense. (laughs) That's why there's no fear in love. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I'm sorry, I might ruin this verse for some of us. I mean, where you're thinking, oh, that's just a little level, lovely you know, pendant for a necklace. You know, perfect love casts out fear. And I'm totally accepted by this person. I have no fear of being you know, judged by them. And those are all kind of good notions. But let's make sure that verse means what John meant it to mean. It means this. There's no fear in love. What? Love that is perfected, right? Perfect love casts out fear. What is perfect love? The love of God that we've received that's then perfected through our loving actions towards others, which is the evidence that we're born of God. Are we following me? I'm trying to look at faces and I see a lot of thinking faces. I'm trying to make sure that we've got comprehension faces. That's why perfect love casts out fear. It's not that you are finding this this sinless perfection experience of love. No, it's that God is perfecting his love. He's bringing it to completion in you as you are engaged in actions of love towards others. Verse 7, verse 11. What that does is it results in you having confidence not in your ability, but in what God has done in you through the new birth of making you his child. Look at verse 19. John does it again. He keeps pointing us back to the source of Christian love. It's as if he knows that we are going to be thinking, how do I do this? What do I have to do? As if it's going to be all up to us. John keeps pointing us back to the source. You see verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. He's pointing it back to the source. Verse 7, love is from God. Verse 8, God is love. Verse 19, we love why? Because he first loved us. And this is why then love can be a test of Christian assurance. Christians don't conjure up love from within themselves. You don't become a Christian by doing a lot of loving things. Christians love others because they've been born of God. Christians love others because they've been loved by God. Christians love others because God's love abides in them and they and God God is the source, the fountainhead. So if you see love in you at work towards others, be confident in what? In God, that he has saved you. Verses 20 and 21, John is giving a summary statement of, what, of his main argument that Christians love one another by that practical test. He, he goes down just talking about doctrine and, and theory and makes it very specific in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. One of those things is a, is a liar. You either don't hate your brother and you do love God, which I don't think is what his meaning. His meaning is you're a liar to say that you love God while simultaneously harboring hatred for a Christian brother or sister. So it's very practical. You cannot have those two coexist. Now, if you think, how am I supposed to get rid of those feelings of hatred for someone else? Friends, the answer is all along where John keeps pointing us back to God's love, God's love, God's love. What are some of the ways that we can love others? Man, there's too many to the list. Too many. It can be simple things. It can be as simple as praying for your church family. That's love. Jesus did that. You can use the church directory to pray for them or just look around and pray for people that you talk to today. That's one of the ways the Coffee Connect is not just a social kind of time. It's really meant for us to love one another. As we talk with one another, we know one another and we're known by each other so that we can be in prayer for one another. 
You can use your home, your time to spend with other Christians to do them spiritual good. You can serve the needs of others through ordinary acts of love and support. Some of us are getting involved in home groups. That's simply an organized strategy for us to deliberately make sure we're getting in close contact with Christians so that we can know them and be known by them to do them spiritual good. The list can go on and on. There's no shortage of ways that you can be engaged in this. But friends, take heart. If you know God, God will be producing a new love. What is one way that you can love others? That you can put love into action this week? What is one way? Think of that. And then by God's grace, set out to do it. I wonder if we might have lost some of the wonderment about God's love. As we come to a conclusion here, I mean, really, we're talking about God's love. He keeps pointing us back to God's love. Sometimes that's not enough for us, sadly. We become bored with the story of redemption. We start thinking about real problems in our lives. But think about the worst problems that might happen to you in life. Maybe it's job loss or the death of a loved one, financial ruin. Maybe it's your fear of catastrophic disability or suffering criminal acts from others or losing your freedom or political upheaval. Or I'm not diminishing the awful horror of any of those possibilities, but those tragedies will all end one day. What will not is eternity. And if your eternity is condemnation, that should be the most terrifying reality. But if your eternity is eternal fellowship with God, no condemnation, well, friends, that's untouchable. Death can't affect that. In fact, death is the only thing that lets you enjoy that. And so I think what one, of the, one of the ways that this text can serve us, there's all sorts of specific applications about us getting busy in love and, and making sure that we are uh, understanding how love serves as a way to give a reassurance to Christians to see evidence of it. But friends, I wonder if just looking at 27 times the word love in just 15 verses would remind us of how spectacular God's love is. How otherworldly it is. How undeserving we are of any of God's love. And yet God delights to love sinners. He's done this. And I wonder if we then would find our hearts finding greater joy in the riches that we have of God's love to then be engaged in acts of love towards others. What kind of eternity will you have? Verse 17 talks about this perfect love casting out fear of no condemnation. What kind of eternity will you have? Are you a child of God? Is this love that John talks about, of Jesus redeeming sinners from slavery to sin, removing guilt, removing all fear of condemnation, is that something that you have personally experienced? Are you born of God? Is God's love at work in you? If not, it would be our desire that you would know God that way, that you would embrace God, His gift to you in Jesus by faith and experiencing the forgiveness of sin and eternal enjoyment of God. If you'd like to learn more about that, we'd be happy to find a time to listen and show you from the Scriptures more about what God has said about Jesus. And Christians, if you've been born of God, then keep setting your eyes firmly on the reality of God's love. You say, oh, what, how are we supposed to not go out of here just worried that we you know, don't do enough love? You know, Here's what we do. Let your emphasis this week be John's emphasis. Yes, he gave us a command, but then he spent all this time reminding us and arguing with us, God, love is from God. God is love. 
God abides in you. You love because he first loved. That's John's emphasis. So this week, here's what we can be busy about thinking. Remembering God loves you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He brought you into relationship with him so, he could, so you could enjoy him forever. If we would be preoccupied that he loves us, friends, I'm convinced that God will produce in this church family loads of perfected love. And all of that will be to the praise of his glory.